0: Market. The SPD, the this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is frankly like the rest of the market, just reeling ever so slightly. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. day, Doc. How are you? Very good, Captain. How are you? Mate, I am excellent. Well, at least to the extent that I can put this week's market falls behind us. It has been a tough, tough, tough old week. In fact, we're recording this on Friday morning before the market opens market may or may not have opened by the time we finish, um, but at this stage, well, frankly, the US markets had their worst day overnight, so Thursday night our time, since 1987 Black Monday, uh, which is not a record you want to break. Thankfully, we didn't break it, but the uh, the second worst, or the worst since, is never a good thing. It's been a tough tough week, mate. So look, what I'm going to do, suggest we do this week, is we're going to to a little bit about the macro story. Um, Frankly, we talked about this before the podcast and there's no real company news and certainly no company news that goes anywhere near, at least in any meaningfully decent sized company, goes anywhere near impacting valuations the way the, the market kind of ructions have and so we, we could and we will talk about stuff that's relevant where it's relevant uh, we just thought this week it's kind of more about the macro but we won't only do the macro because frankly there's no shortage of podcasts and headlines and talking heads that are doing that already um we'll talk about the economy we'll talk about the coronavirus we'll talk about the oil price but then i thought we'd just get straight into the mailbag mate because a we love doing mailbag questions and b I think that's probably more useful right now for, for our listeners than than spending too much time on on some news that probably isn't as relevant to share prices and frankly uh, financial futures as the um, as as the bag the, the questions that people have got that actually might help them invest better. What do you reckon? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's get on with it.
1: Motley Fool Money. For more,
0: go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right buddy, so <laughs> I don't know how to lead into this segment because what do I say hey so there's a single coronavirus or hey the oil price is down let's let's try though and and summarize to some degree where we're kind of at and we have talk about coronavirus every week we keep doing it because it's kind of still the dominant story it's the dominant financial story clearly the dominant health and, and um, welfare story uh, it's the one that really is taking massive chunks out of share price and, and people's portfolios right now so I don't really know even how to summarise it. The news is changing so frequently. I guess if we think about what happened this week, let's start with that. So the market's down massively. I don't know where it'll finish down today, but I think you were saying before we are recording, the futures are down 7-ish percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can assume that's that's you know plus or minus a couple of points where we'll end up. Um, so we happened this week, we had the WHO finally declaring the coronavirus a pandemic. Uh, that was actually received reasonably well by markets overnight, US markets and the ASX. We were down about 2-ish percent. And then Donald Trump came out at midday our time on what I think was Tuesday or Wednesday. The days are kind of blending together. Uh, And he announced the US stimulus and had exactly the opposite effect. (laughs) Shares were down 2 and ended up down 5 in Australia really, really, really quickly. Um, Like phenomenally quickly. Um, The market clearly not taking Trump's um, reassurances to heart either because the stimulus isn't enough or maybe it was the wrong type of stimulus or just simply, um, I don't know, I don't, I'm don't. i not exactly sure what markets expected would be different that didn't happen. Of course, the big thing at the same time was the US has banned entry from mainland Europe for 30 days, excluding the UK, which seems a little bit unusual to me. I guess it's an island, but still. Um, if you're going to ban Europe, I would have thought you banned the UK, but maybe there's other reasons there. So that happened uh, and that kind of, again, shook the markets pretty meaningfully. Of course, then we had the Australian stimulus, $17.8 billion, the way most people calculate it, announced. Is it yesterday, our time? I'm trying to remember. I think it was Thursday. And then ScoMo on TV last night, kind of trying to reassure everyone that everything was okay. Nothing's working right now, mate. So that's, that's, the, that's the headline. Health-wise, we still see increasing numbers of cases being diagnosed in... I'll say the West. It's kind of a a rough, loose term, but uh, Australian cases are increasing. The US is having more states with cases. Um, The ACT announced their first case yesterday, making every Australian state and territory have at least some or one case per per state or territory. To some degree, it feels like we're still in the early innings of how this rolls out. That's probably the health concern. Um, And then- I will, I will go with their oil price and I'll come back to it. The other thing that happened this week was Russia and Saudi Arabia picked a really wonderful time to have a fight over oil prices. Um, we know, and this is, look, I'm I kind of. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit half, I'm a bit glass half full on this one, I think, on average. I probably am generally, but um, Saudi Arabia, so Russia basically, look, we're not going to talk to you guys about restricting volumes. It's funny, the OPEC's a funny thing, right? OPEC is the Middle Eastern cartel, oil cartel, that has for decades now constrained supply to keep prices high. It's a sort of cartel that if it was inside any, any particular country, it would be illegal and would be stamped down on by governments and people would be thrown in jail. But because A, it's international, and B, we desperately needed their oil for such a long time, it wasn't really anything anyone could do about it or would do about it, um, at least not in any big way in, in recent years. There were certainly some political and the occasional military challenge back in the day, but we kind of lived with it for, for 30 or 40 years. All of a sudden, Russia's found a lot of oil. Venezuela has a lot of oil. The U.S. has a whole lot of shale, and it's kind of changed the balance. Russia's pretty much said to the OPEC, "I'm not going to play your game." At one point, they were kind of doing a deal with OPEC and saying, "Yeah, we'll we'll kind of we're not part of OPEC, but we'll we'll negotiate with you guys and decide something that works for everybody." Russia kind of went, "No, no, I'm not going to do that." Saudi Arabia then said, "Well, stuff you, Jack. We'll do whatever we want," which is kind of in itself led to a breakdown in OPEC. Generally, the oil price fell thirty percent in a day. Which is just phenomenal. Talk about share price falls thirty percent price in the, the fall of oil in a day, um, and and you know some comments we might see dollar a litre prices at you know, the petrol pump in Australia. Now, if you're a if you're an optimist, <laughs> you're saying well, okay, it's, it sucks for for oil oil company shareholders, but if we get a bit like an interest rate cut, if we get cheaper petrol, that's got to be good for the economy, right? It's got to put more money in people's pockets or maybe just take less out when it comes to filling the tank. Generally speaking, there's a uh, I think in the US that you can't win an election with or with a petrol price over four dollars a gallon. Um, so you know it's it's a it's a hip pocket issue. It's one of those things that does change people's perception of success, of how the economy is going, all that kind of stuff. All right, that was a very long <laughs> lead in. You've had a chance to have, have a nap and let me just banter on for a bit. Um, let's start, mate. With well, let's start with the the individuals, and we'll work back to the whole. So talk to me about let's make, let's do the I won't say the easier one, but maybe the 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 less difficult one, um, the oil price and, and what's going on there. How do you see that? I mean, obviously, it's compounding everything, so they don't. you can't do it in complete isolation. But your thoughts on the, what I guess is going to be seen in hindsight as an oil shock, the price coming down this time rather than up. How are you thinking about that economically, financially, and from an investing angle?
2: Yeah, so like the oil price, actually, funny enough, actually, I think you know it should be net positive, right? Oil prices coming down basically means that well, it's it's good for people, good for goods transport. It's good for uh, essentially, as you said, it's like an interest rate cut to some extent. Right, uh, it should be mostly a positive, except um, it has come at the effectively the wrong time because it's also yeah. going to likely to put um, you know high cost oil producers out of business. Uh, it's probably going to make it hard for you know highly indebted oil right. producers to continue in operation, and it's come of a time when there may be a liquidity crisis. so I think that's right. the the plus and minus. Um, yeah I, I, to me like the oil thing was a sideshow okay <laughs> it, it's not really the main show I think the oil uh, oil thing is just it's just happening there it's you know it's important if you're in the materials kind of industry um, but I don't think um, it in a normal sort of um, environment mm. uh, I don't think it was that meaningful or that important.
0: Okay, that's, that's my take. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think it look, so only for, I actually kind of agree with you. I think it would it's you know what's funny? We kind of only can deal with one headline at a time, right? If this had happened three months earlier, three months later, maybe not three months later, depending on how long the coronavirus thing goes for. But you know what I mean? Generally speaking, if this had happened in the absence of any other news, it would have been the only news we talked about for weeks. It would have been the economists and the headline writers and the pundits would have been spending time doing nothing, almost nothing other than that, right? It would have been so much time spent on on that part of the. Of, of the news cycle, if you like. Um, I mean, it <laughs> wasn't that long ago we were talking about China's issues as, a, as an economy rather than a health issue. Um, we only kind of deal with one set of headlines at a time. And as you say, in, in a different environment, this would have been a problem. I'll add my two cents. I think I've already said a little bit, I'm an optimist generally. This will actually also, by the way, impact inflation. And so the RBAs already have this, has this, a target inflation rent of two to 3%. It's one of those situations where you, the price um, of oil falls that actually hurts inflation, even though it's better for everybody else. It's one of those bizarre things where the economy feels or looks worse off because, hey, inflation is still below that target range. We're not getting growth and all that kind of stuff. GDP will be, probably be down in nominal terms because we'll use the same amount of oil but pay less for it, so that's lowered value of economic activity. So you kind of get all those things. Think, man, that's kind of you know, it's a thing, right? It's it's you know, the, on the on the on the black and white numbers of it. A lower oil price is actually, in theory, bad for the economy. I think if you look through it, though, you can see there is – that. that's kind of one of those things where the things we're measuring and trying to count simply aren't as relevant as they otherwise might be. Yeah, I think so. All right. So is there a uh, – <laughs> is there another topic to talk about? It turns out there is. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll get on to corona. Motley Fool Money.
1: Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All
0: right, buddy. Um, coronavirus, this is such an enormously, massively huge topic. It's one of those situations where I think there's a there's a phenomenal amount of uncertainty and so there is – and we say this every week and I'll say it again because it's really important. Um, it's it's really – it's important that we realise there is a, a real human impact here. There are people who are, are suffering and dying from this. There are family members uh, or families who are losing family members. This is not something that we want to ever – forget there's a human component of when we talk about the financial impact so again we don't do it just as a a box to exercise we genuinely believe that's an issue and we don't we always want to recognize that and and acknowledge that because that's that's the biggest deal right for anybody you know losing your portfolio or losing a family member it's a a pretty easy choice right so that that's it, it is something we feel deeply and we feel um seriously and it's important that we talk about that being said, this is not the the podcast for that side of it. i am have a few to talk about it, of course, if you want Doc. talk. Um, but the the big question is the question about finance – you know, for us as a podcast, the, the financial impact. Now, I've already mentioned the market is falling dramatically. Um, the bad news the, – the headline news kind of – part of I wouldn't be surprised if part of the falls are just this, this ongoing kind of staccato um, – bursts of headline news. Um, literally, as we're recording here, I'm seeing an Arsenal manager, Mikel Arteta, has tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, so UK football, I also see that France are closing schools. It almost literally, you've only been away from your computer for 15 minutes and all of a sudden the news changes, right? There's something else going on. I wonder to some degree if it's that that kind of just death by a thousand cuts, the market's trying to desperately work out what's going on, almost can't catch its breath because the news is continually so bad. Now, it's not, it's not getting worse, it is, um, but if your job is to try and try and forecast future, you, you know, to, the stock market's supposed to be a future-looking mechanism. If your job is to try and look forward and price that in today, either the market's not going be a very good job and still desperately every day trying to catch up with how bad it actually is or should be or could be, or it's just that sense of like, my God, what is going on here? How do we possibly try and grasp the potential financial impacts?
2: Yeah, so I have some views on this. Um, one of the things I think that's happening, um, in my view, is that you know financial commentators, uh, you know people, um, even even actually people who are making policy decisions or even the government. I think the way this is being tackled is largely being tackled as an economic crisis or the right. impending economic crisis. Whereas, whereas actually this is really a health crisis, which is turning into an economic crisis. And I think that it's a very fine line of distinction. Right, right. As, right. You, as, you, as you said, like, I mean, the thing is, it is very difficult. and it's easy for someone at, at a government level to say, oh, okay, you know, carry on with whatever you are doing. Yeah. It's okay, few people die because yeah. I need the economy to carry on.
0: <laughs> right? That's, uh, a, that's a reasonably cynical view. That's a
2: ve- well, but that's exactly what the, you know, the prime minister today is saying. Oh, I'm going to go watch footy. Okay, and you should go and watch Forty Two. Okay, but it's okay. A few people die because that's fine. <laughs> you, you know, that, that's very cynical. I'm taking a cynical view, right, but I think right. that, that's where the problem is. I think yeah. the problem is that it's being tackled as a financial problem, whereas yeah. it's really a health crisis. Okay, and um, you know, just as we're reading this, so the Grand Prix, for example, are going to continue, but with no crowds. Cricket is going to continue, but with no crowds. Right. Um, and I think the 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 reality is that the, as people continue socializing and as mm-hmm. people continue mixing, the basically the virus keeps spreading, yep. and as the virus spreads, it basically you know spreads faster.
0: Okay. Right.
1: So
2: if we are not doing anything about the virus, then we are basically impacting the economy, okay. and I think right now um, the markets are really uncertain about how the you know, how this is going to unfold, right? Mm -hmm. Where is this going to end? Mm. Uh, My initial view was that maybe the northern summer is going to actually help, and uh, that'll calm things down. I still believe that maybe that's going to happen, but, you know, we are just getting into the flu season here so um and given that there's a haphazard sort of action from different governments mm, italians mm. went into essentially a complete lockdown after they had a huge health crisis um you know the americans have started doing some sort of measures after they think that you know uh, the situation is getting out of hand mm. and I, I think it's that that sort of actions so i think the it's in my view it's it's the it's basically trying to deal with the effect and not the cause. Whereas I think if you deal with the cause, then I think you have a better chance of a better uh, out, outcome. Both yeah. from a both from a you know lost lives point of view. Both from a uh, you know the economy is just as much about money flowing through the system as about confidence. And if right. you know if people start dying, mm. then the confidence basically caters, right? And you know it's a cycle of bad news. So I think that, that's that's what I stand. I think you know. Yeah, it's a really tough one, mm. and it seems like you know we are still in the very early stages of this um, unfolding.
0: I think that's right. I, I you know, so I go. <laughs> I don't. Really, I don't really defend politicians. I got to say. So this is unusual territory for me. I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing. I, where I where I think it's challenging, and maybe I'm being too generous, um, is that the unspoken reality of politics or government generally is we accept. A level of death and injury from everyday life, right? And I think to some degree, you know, we could stop, we could lower the road toll to zero tomorrow if we lower the, the the breath test limit to zero. We had coppers on every corner, and we speed limited cars to forty k's an hour. We we almost almost literally short of sort of a heart attack in a car. We'd almost we'd, you know we reduce the road toll to zero. Now we choose directly or indirectly not to do that because we we either you know for whatever whatever combination of reasons complacency we just kind of. I guess, acknowledge that that's just the reality. We just have to live with the fact that there, there's some trade-off between everyday life and the absolute protection of every life and, and potential injury, right? Where the kids play in playgrounds. The, the the list of potential risks and issues is, is endless. I don't actually envy, and I, I'm not even saying you're wrong. I just, maybe I'm just being sympathetic to governments and, and regulators who have to try and work out at what point you... You know, there are side effects to everything. If we if we lock, you know, we could lock down the country every, every winter because the flu season is going to kill some people when we don't. I'm not saying this is the flu, by the way, for like those who want to jump on me and say I'm saying it's not like the flu. I'm not saying it's like the flu. I'm just saying at some point, trying to work out the right balance between what do you do, when do you do it, how hard do you push, and then the confidence thing to your point, mate, I think is actually a real issue. I think, you know, to some degree you know, frankly, a faltering economy has issues. People out of work have issues. We know that people on um, unemployment benefits die at large numbers, for example, either because um, it's just that kind of psychological, physical interaction, or just people can't afford heating in some circumstances. We know that particularly in Northern winters, a lot of pensioners and people who are, are in poverty die because they simply can't heat themselves in the cold. I mean, there are all of those things that that everyone, you know, that, that inter- kind of connected web of stuff um, I think there is absolutely a point at which you should shut down everything. There's a point at which you say everything's okay and there's a, a really massively grey area in between that where we're all kind of fishing in the dark a little bit, aren't we?
2: Um, I actually disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> I, like, not just a little that's what bit, the completely for. completely wholeheartedly because I think uh, I think that's a very – I wouldn't – I think that's a very, like, you know, maybe first order thinking that this is just like the flu and therefore. I'm not you know, saying it's just like die. the flu,
0: to be really clear. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. What I'm saying is that, as or this that thing some unfolds. number of people
2: die. Um, <laughs> I think that's. Um, I, I think what is happening is that the second order effects are being completely ignored uh, in, in the process. So um, it, it, it's a very simple thing, right? I mean, effectively, if, if you let, uh, let. Let me backtrack. Okay. Given that we were. Um, lower down the ladder in terms of being affected. Mm-hmm. And we actually got to see what was happening uh, up in the Northern Hemisphere. We saw how China dealt with it. Right. And how China actually has reduced the number of total number of cases, new cases that are happening. And in mm-hmm. fact, for such a big country, they managed to lock down the problem to one area
1: mm-hmm.
2: and effectively, slowly but steadily, get their economy up and running. We saw what South Korea did.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: right, And then we saw what, the it- Italians are doing, mm. and how that's a complete disaster. There was an opportunity there uh, for a country like ours to actually learn mm. from that, mm. which we didn't, mm. right? And I-, I think it's a trade-off, exactly as you say. But you know, there's a preventable trade-offs, and then there is non-preventable trade. This was, you know, you could basically have taken better action, mm. and the better action, absolutely, in the short term. Um, there's cost to it, yep. right? But I think what people are not modeling here is the long-term cost, right? If you assume that half the population is actually affected, like and the British Premier has actually come out and said, you know, expect half the population, maybe 70% of the population to be affected, expect people to die. That's what he has basically come out and said. Mm. Uh, now, I agree, okay, if you come out and say that, well, it sounds like, you know, you're basically creating more panic. Right, but, that's, but, that's what I mean but, about but, the, but, 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 the, the government, But right? But the effect is that, you know, there, there's a fine balance between creating panic and being prepared Mm. and i feel like we're not prepared right um and and the the economic and the human cost of not being prepared is pretty substantial in my view and i think the problem is i think what people don't realize is or are not realizing is that there's a short-term cost you Mm. take a short-term hit but Mm. you allow yourself better basically you allow yourself if you slowed it down mm. by basically taking some temporary cost in terms of you know closure, like why did mm. Denmark, mm. for example, mm. go into two week closure, mm. right? Uh, they're willing to take that cost and saying, okay, well let's close down for two weeks and then we'll see what happens, right? Can we slow it down? Can we give our basically the moment you slow it down, you're giving your medical system, your medicos, your nurses, your doctors, um, an opportunity. To actually deal with the fallout, mm, yeah. you're giving scientists who are working on solutions an opportunity to actually catch back and fight.
1: Mm.
2: By not slowing it down, what you're effectively doing is you're creating an economic, big economic problem, and along with that, you're creating debts. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you know, in in some cases, you've got to have to sacrifice uh, in the short term, and I think that, that that's that's what I think differ um, in terms of you know the the actions that are being taken and. Yeah, and then there's going to be some fallout for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, anyways, I, I, I think I agree. This is a hard policy decision. Yeah. But I think there were lessons here to be learned. And the WHO has basically come out and said in its report, if, if anybody has taken the time to actually read the report, and the report basically says that, look, what the Chinese have eventually done mm. has worked. What mm. the Koreans have eventually done has actually worked. And what the Italians have done has not
0: worked. Right. Okay.
2: And there is a lesson there to be learned. Yeah. And I think not following expert advice, mm. people who have actually taken risk and gone to the ground and actually done the work, mm. I heard it borders on stupidity. Mm. in my view mm. so um, yeah so I, I think stimulus is is not the solution really is um, I think they've gone down the wrong path
0: which gets me nicely to stimulus actually mate so um, the the government announced 17.8 billion dollars over uh, well in the next three months they're trying to get it all out the door by June. Frankly, I think in terms of – if we're going to be criticizing, I think that's that's just phenomenally long. If you're waiting three months to hand out stimulus dollars, um, you know, the dollar, the dollar gets, gets delivered to someone on the 29th of June doesn't to me sound particularly useful. If, if, if things have gone bad between now and then, and if things aren't bad by then, then we're probably okay. It, it does strike me as a little bit bizarre that it's going to take three and a half months to get the money into people's hands in, in the way that the government is, is planning it. Um, we know there's money being given to welfare recipients. We know there's money being given to small businesses. We know there's been money given to support apprenticeships um little things like apparently national park fees are being waived to try and get people to go and travel keep the economy kind of afloat um your thoughts on the size level uh, appropriateness um targeting of that stimulus
2: yeah so i think the stimulus again like i'll cover that by saying that i think the, the stimulus approach is actually the wrong approach because it's addressing the wrong problem right but that said um i think the stimulus is actually fine you know what again, like, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be, you know, the the negative guy on the podcast today. But, you know, the thing with the stimulus is the stimulus is basically addressing a technical recession. So, I think what Mm. they're trying to do is Mm. basically put money in now so that we technically are not in recession. Um, And, I have a feeling it may do the job, you know? Like, right. it, it, it has a chance of doing the job because it, it looks like a big enough amount of money and if they've done the modeling right, um, uh, or close enough to being right, that there's a chance <laughs> that... They're uh, so yeah, saying
1: like,
2: there's a chance.
0: Yeah, there's a chance that, <laughs> that you
2: actually, you know, technically avoid recession. Right. Now, like, I think, again, I'll go back to the point. Like, you know, you avoid recession, I don't know, that does something in people's mind. But if, you yeah. know, if every, every family has some debts, that yeah. does something in their mind. And then maybe the technical recession will still happen because people wouldn't spend. Right. You know, it's it's all those, uh, 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 I think, again, it, it is, I think there is a, as, as much as we talk about behavioral science, right, mm. I think there is a huge ignorance of behavioral aspects mm. of the economics here, mm. and there is just a pure focus on the quantitative aspects of the economics. Right. And, um, yeah, so I think quantitatively, it seems like this will do the job. And I think it's a, it's a good package because I think what supporting the, uh, We have a lot of small and medium businesses. Those are likely to be hit hard. Mm. Um, So therefore, supporting them makes sense. Uh, Keeping those people employed, otherwise those people would not have jobs, makes sense. Um, Giving... Giving businesses money to actually, you know, waiving basically, basically saying that you're going to write off assets up to a certain value, yeah. uh, or increasing the value makes sense because that you know results in spending. So if somebody was thinking about, yeah. um, you know, expanding their business or buying equipment and so on, they could do that. Uh, but again, I go back to the flip side, right? I mean, you know, people would want to spend the money if they're feeling okay. But if they are, you know, if, if we feel like we're in a health crisis, we are not going to be spending the money because, hey, health comes before, you know, spending the money. you got to right, be, right, right. you got to, the, the country overall as a whole needs to feel good yep. to be actually spending the money. Yep. So I think, I think that's where I come back to it. I think, you know, um, there are two two sides to it. So mm-hmm. I, I I actually don't mind the stimulus package. Maybe giving directly people the money is, uh, you know, like if you cut it, if you cut of basically give a blank check to everyone, that's probably know, um, not a blank check then everybody will write whatever amount they want to write but you know if you give people uh, mm-hmm. without any uh, I guess um, ties to it like you know mm-hmm. without basically saying oh you need to buy something that's why I'm giving you this money or if you spend on wages then I'm going to give you the money which is the way it's being given, given out right now
1: right.
2: Uh, you could have just given people you know, $500 each Any mm-hmm. tax, every taxpayer gets $500 each and then they're likely to spend some of that. Um, that's another way of doing it. But yeah, I don't mind. I, I think the stimulus package is fine. Probably, you know, um, amount wise, it's a pretty big amount, looks yep. like a big amount to me. So I, I, I think that's, you know, that part I don't have actually, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't criticize that. I think yep. that's fine.
0: Yep. Nice. I, I'm pretty the same, man Like, I think I actually would criticize parts of it um, just because we all got different views on what's. Best or, or or worst? I think what I wouldn't criticise, and I think also, frankly, in the past, people have been too quick to criticise the Kevin Rudd, the so-called cash splash. That kind of I uh, 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 criticise our, our our I would say peers in the media because we don't necessarily consider ourselves in the media. But um, you know, people in the media kind of grabbed that cash splash thing and the pink bats thing, and it kind of became this byword for mismanagement or something else. I I thought at the time, I still think that the cash splash was a good idea even though it was always going to be partly wasted and, and lead to some un, you know, negative outcomes, I'm pretty sure this particular um, the stimulus package, call it a cash splash, to use the same words, um, will be the same for the Morrison government. There'll be areas where they, in hindsight, will see things done badly, where money will be misspent, not spent well enough, uh, could have been spent better, all that kind of stuff. Those things are absolutely true. But in this case, it is the size and the pace of the action rather than the specifics of what you actually do that make the difference. We know that in 2009, um, there's a very, very, very high probability that the, the, the Rudd, Swan, Cash actually kept us out of recession. Now, as you said, Doc, you saw where technically it's important, right? Plus 0.1% or minus 0.1% in terms of GDP growth is almost exactly the same thing. Yet, if you have two minus 0.1s, it becomes a recession. And the behavioral impacts, as you mentioned, on that, as a result of that, are huge. And so keeping us out of recession was in itself enough um, you know, could have been done differently. Of course, it could have, but was this enough? I think absolutely. I think to some degree, this is this is the same as you say with the stimulus package. I'd like to see it a little bit larger. I have to say, I think erring on the side of caution. If it's a question of do we don't go into a recession, if we go into a recession just because they didn't spend enough money, um, versus we don't go into a recession, they spend a little bit too much money, I think it's a really really easy trade-off, right? I'd happily spend a bit more, spend another year getting the budget back into the black if necessary. Although these are normally one-off measures, right? So the budget should go back into the black by itself next year. If, that, if the rest of the structural stuff stayed the same. And again, we don't know whether that's true or not, but these are one-off payments so they don't affect the structural balance of the budget. I would have gone harder. Also, I also would put more money in people's hands rather than directly to businesses. If you want to support businesses, you get people to shop at those businesses, right? Um, and that money then gets spent around the place. If I give money to a business, a tax deduction for doing something or uh, you know, some money to keep an apprentice on, does that money get circulated through the economy or go into the company bank account? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Um, same with consumer spending, by the way. It could go into to pay the mortgage rather than buy a new TV or, or, or spend some money going out for dinner. So those things are always going to be potentially problematic. I, I would have put more into consumers' hands rather than business' hands, and I would have probably spent more overall to make sure that the circulation of money continued despite the problems. And again, as you say, there, there's – I think the stimulus is different from the health response. Um, you can be critical of one or both. You can support one or both. Um, you can think one's great and the other's terrible. terrible. Um, I think that, I think it's overall a pretty good deal. I'd happily see them find another $10 billion out of throw at the problem, I have to say. Your thoughts?
2: No, uh, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, if they want to throw another $5 billion at it, uh, you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't have an issue with that. I, I, I thought it was okay, but yeah, there's always more that can be done.
0: Very good. Mate, so look, I think we'll probably move on to the questions that we got from our members. it's been a bit of time on the mailbag. Do you have any last thoughts on kind of the, the macro-y stuff? Well, actually, no, let's, let's, I'll ask you a very specific question because um, listeners are saying, well, you've talked a lot about it, but you haven't talked about what you're going to do next. So the question then turns to: we've talked a lot about what's going on. We've talked a lot about, you know, if we were in charge of the, of the Treasury or the Health Department, what we would possibly do. Um, all of that, not sorry, aside, because we don't, you know, you can't sweep it aside, but in, the, in, that, in, that, um, in those circumstances, you're an investor, I'm an investor, we have a portfolio of shares, we have cash. What are you doing now in the face of this unfolding crisis?
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So, you know, we have had pretty big faults, right? Um, uh, one of the things I'm doing is um, I'm actually trying to watch um, the COVID-19 data. Right. That actually the data is freely available It's you know John Hopkins University has a tracker there is another tracker out there uh, you could basically search for it and you can yeah, find it. <laughs> um, so there's there's a lot of trackers out there. Yeah. I'm I'm watching the tracker. In the the reason I'm watching that is as is, is I said you know I've I've taken I've changed my view a little bit. I right. was initially of the opinion that you know you could have it's looked like a correction a little bit of a panic but uh, you know now it looks like it's a little bit more than that to me. And and therefore, I'm, I'm watching what's happening in terms of the news. Right.
1: Uh,
2: I was actually doing some buying, but I was, you know, what I call scaling in. I was, you know, scaling in and doing a little bit. Um, I've actually stopped right now, okay. largely because what I want to do is I want to be in a position uh, to to buy really cheap. Because I think some things are going to become really cheap is, is what I think uh, is going to happen. Um, I'm also, I'm a little... I'm also a little skeptical right now of companies that have debt because, mm-hmm. again, the other thing that, that is interesting is if, if you have a company that's either reliant on the market for, for cash, so equity, yep. or that has debt that needs to be financed or that debt has got covenants around earnings depending on how long this continues, those companies could actually be in trouble, yeah. or they may not be in trouble, right? So uh, I'm, I'm a little cautious, uh, let me put it this way, I'm, be, I'm cautious, um, uh, that said, you know, my strategy really is that as things become cheaper, um, then you buy, right. things become a lot more cheaper than you buy more, um, right? But everybody has finite amount of cash, so basically I'm just yeah, right. staging my cash deployment. If I own is a, a company that I liked before, and I don't think that it's going to go bankrupt <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, and then, and then I think I'm just continuing to hold it. I'm not selling anything. I've not sold the thing. Okay. Um, but I am have have scaled down uh, the the rate at which I'm basically what I call I'm, I'm basically scaling in is what I what I'm doing. That that's my strategy right now. And I'm just watching the news. And I'm basically willing to adapt as the information. Flows.
0: nice. I'm going to ask you, if you could two clarifications, mate, because they're really important points you make. The first one is I want to dig a little bit deeper into the debt question. Mm. Um, so just, just just for those listeners who aren't maybe as as experienced as investors or as people who are reading businesses or business balance sheets and profit loss statements, just just give us the give us the skinny on why debt can become a problem in certain circumstances.
2: Yeah, so so I actually raised both. I think I'll talk about both the debt and the equity point, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason, you know, because the service that I run, uh, Extreme options is is a higher risk service, right? And a lot of these companies are early stage companies. And so one of the things with early stage companies, or any, and this would apply to some other companies with a, you know, heavily indebted as well, is early stage companies need equity. They need equity for essentially growing their business, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They may not be actually cash flow positive. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're not cash flow positive, that means you don't actually generate cash in your business, Mm And you need equity to grow. You could be in trouble if the equity market has marked down your shares significantly because then right. you, if you have to raise cash, right. assuming that you can raise cash, you're going to be actually diluting a lot. And so just, you,
0: I'm going to ask you, this, again. we're going to dig deeper and deeper here. So, okay, so you, you've, got, you've got $10 million in the bank, but you're burning $2 million a month. Yeah. That means at some point, and you've got no debt because you're so small, no one's going to lend you any money. Yeah. So you've got $10 million now, five and a half months time, you're effectively insolvent. Yeah. And you're go broke. If that happens, how do you manage... Or so so obviously, at that point, company needs money. Either they won't be able to raise it, which is your second point. So literally, at, at almost any price, people are like, no, I'm not giving you my money. I, either I'm too scared or there are too many better ideas yeah. out there. I'm just simply not going to give you know, Scott's shoe-cobbling business more cash because it's burning too much and I simply don't want to. Or if I do raise cash... If I want to raise ten million dollars and I had my shares were a dollar a share, I've got to issue ten million shares. That hurts. Yeah. If my shares are ten cents a share, I'm going to issue ten times as many shares. Yeah. And you will put about dilution. The, the, the current existing holders maybe they would have lost ten percent of the company previously. Now they're almost losing the entire company just to keep the thing afloat. Even if the business itself continues, shareholders can be almost wiped out, and that's not with a dollar of debt.
1: Yeah, exactly. So
2: you, you nailed it. So that that's you know, so that's a problem for any company that has this short ish runaway. Right. Right. So and and that's a good example. So let's say you're burning two million dollars a quarter and you've got ten million in the bank, right, then effectively you've only got five quarters worth of runway, but a company really can't wait until it has got zero cash.
0: Right, to, exactly, right, that, right. So it
2: probably needs to do raise in a couple of quarters. Yeah. So the question is, how long does it... So, I mean, th- those yeah. are the things I think investors should really be thinking about. Then there are companies which have got significant amount of debt. Right. Right? Now, in normal times, uh, most a lot of the debt would be, say, tied to operating earnings, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how much is operating earnings? Your beta or whatever your beta modification, right? Um, and and then, um, the, you know, they would say, okay, if you generate that much, uh, then you're within the covenants. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, if if you have a highly re- if you're running a highly leveraged business, what typically means is those businesses are highly dependent on foot traffic or sales because you know, as the sales go up, because you've got a large fixed cost base. Right. Well, if you've got a large fixed cost base more sales means more profits, but less sales means very quickly you're actually making a loss, which means you might actually be breaking those debt covenants.
0: So if you look at Woolworths, for example, they only keep, at the end of the day, after they've paid all their costs, about four cents in every dollar of retail sales. Yeah. Which doesn't leave a lot of room for sales to Some of that's product cost, to be fair. Yeah. But their cost of doing business is probably 60% of the, and this is an average, right? 60% of the... Um, uh of the of the product price the revenue. Yeah. If you look at a discretionary retailer, so that, that's Woolies, right? They they're almost certainly okay. If you look at a discretionary retailer selling fashion products for some descri- some description, you've got people less likely to go out. You've got less li- people less likely even to do go out to go and spend frivolously potentially. It wouldn't take all that much for sales in a in a especially faddish kind of retailer to be down 10-15% at the worst of whatever we get to here. Yeah. And as you say, in that point, and so covenants is an interesting term too. Covenants basically means rules, right? In our, in our sense, yep. the banks will say, "I will give you this money, but you have to." You're effectively in breach of the loan conditions if you don't meet these rules. Now, there's not many for Australian mortgage holders. We're not used to those as as individual businesses. But if I lost my job tomorrow, as long as I still pay the bills, the bank would be okay. But if you're a corporate and you borrow money, the covenant might be your you know your profit has to stay above a certain multiple of the interest you have got to pay me. Exactly. And for my purpose that might be my my wages, right? So if I get fired tomorrow, the bank doesn't come to me and say, Actually your wages are now, you know, less than two times the interest bill. So I'm gonna to go to call your mortgage. But if you're a corporate and your profit falls, you've got to go to the bank and say, Um, guys, so that, that money that you said I could keep, I've broken the rules. And the bank can then technically say, Well, actually we want it all back right now. And the company says, I can't give it to you right now. The bank says, Okay, I'm gonna put you in liquidation. I mean, that's, that's, that actually does happen. It doesn't happen all the time. They normally find ways around this stuff, but often it's painful. And that's kind of the risk, right? There's some of these companies that otherwise, even if they're can, even if they not technically insolvent in terms of they can actually pay their bills as they come due, if they don't meet those rules, the banks can call in the debts. And if you have those debts called in, that makes you insolvent when otherwise you're actually a business that actually had ongoing operations in a way that wouldn't have sent you broke if the bank didn't call a loan.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's that effect. Then, uh, you know, consumer discretionary is another effect where e- if consumer sentiment is down for whatever reason, um, you know, those sales can very quickly disappear. Um, yeah, so, so, I mean, there's mm. a bunch of interrelated things to think about. I mean, right. in, in usually companies with, you, you you know, you'd see that the even the share price falls, typically, you know, while they might be irrational in many, in many ways, mm. you'd notice that companies that have um, you know, strong balance sheets, you know, and net debt equal to zero. Those would probably weather the storm better mm. because it gives them more runway uh, and more opportunity. And and usually a crisis type of situation usually means that the weak, the weaklings, unfortunately, weak businesses are the ones that actually disappear or yeah. have a hard time. Right? Yep. It's yep. this is the time. It's, it's I actually read a very interesting thing um for all the doom and gloom that crisis bring um, it is interesting that companies like Uber, Airbnb were all established mm. at the debt the depths of the financial crisis <laughs> right all um right. and and a lot of great companies <laughs> that we know today yep. are. You know, we're just you know smaller companies at that time. So this is this is right. this is a time when good companies actually, with you know which which know how to navigate <laughs> the water, yeah. have the balance sheet to actually yeah. do it do well. And this is a this is the time when you know the profligating companies, the companies that are, you know been burning cash and right, actually right. you know that's, they don't do well. So as as investors, I think we need to be mindful of that a little bit, um, and and that's a good point. and and just watch. For what we own and why we are buying something, um, and and I think you know again, as I said, you know at the end of the day, on with hindsight, we'll look back probably and say this is this is an opportunity or was an opportunity. You don't have to time the bottom, but just need to be mindful of what you're buying.
0: It'd be fascinating in 2028 to see which companies were invented in 2020, right? Exactly well, the, the next yeah. Uber or the next whatever. And I think you're right, mate. Too. I mean, look, Harvey Norman traditionally, just to pick an example, I think it's a long company. I followed it for a long time. It's an old company, or you know, relatively old, but. It kind of, every time it had a recession in its life, it'd jump another couple of steps forward of the competition. You know, some of the other guys would go out of business because Harvey Norman was the biggest, the baddest, had, had the best ability to leverage prices, get people in the stores. And so even if, even if it was doing it tough, someone else was doing it tougher. And Harvey Norman, to your point, the, the big business that kept getting bigger or better kept kind of growing further and further ahead of the competition every time there was a downturn. A long boom and again look we all love it from a from a <laughs> stock market perspective and you know, frankly, no one hates low rates, but a long boom and very low cost of money has actually kept a lot of frankly inferior businesses afloat longer than they would have been otherwise, right? Because everyone's spending, so I guess you'd have to try too hard and money's cheap, so I guess you don't your business model doesn't have to be too good. Except when those things stop, you really, you know, to use Buffett's line, you do find out who's been swimming naked to some degree. Yeah, exactly. All right, mate, let's get on with the questions. Hopefully, that's been useful. I, actually, before I do, we'll give out our socials. So, um, we're going to answer a lot of questions now, and, and probably we'll probably do a, a podcast, I think, this Sunday, mate, if that works for you. We'll, we'll keep the, the tape rolling, as they like to say, um, and we'll, we'll record one for Sunday as well. We'll get through a heap of questions if we can. Broadly, I want to say um, if you've got any questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, we know that people are doing it tough. We know that investors are doing it tough. I, you know, we've both been investing for a long time. We've been through this before. Uh, I was investing during the 09. I was investing during '99. Uh, I wasn't investing in '87. I was at high school. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, I, you know, I remember that. I remember that uh, very vividly. Um, at least as an, as an observer. So look, you know, we've been here before. We know what this is like. We don't know where, you know, then it never always exactly the same. So we can't tell you with any certainty how this ends or when it ends or how bad it gets before it does. But we've been there before. We understand it's stressful, scary. Um, worrying. You've got lots and lots of questions. So now is a great time if you've got them to hit us up on the socials. Um, So let me run through them. Twitter, you can hit us up at The Motley Fool AU. Pretty straightforward. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti and I'm at TMF Scott P. On Facebook, you can hit us up at The Motley Fool Australia and I'm Scott Phillips Money. Doc Still, despite pressure from me and others, isn't on Facebook. Uh, And also on Instagram at The Motley Fool AU and at TMF Scott P. So pretty straightforward there. Um, Hit us up with questions, comments, feedback. Let us know your thoughts on the podcast generally. But most importantly at the moment, if you've got questions, if you're feeling like you don't know where to turn or you're not sure what's coming next or you simply want to understand something about what we've said or how we said it, um, please hit us up and leave us those questions, leave us those thoughts. All right, buddy. Mailbag time. Let's do it. Real money advice from real people. Not just a
1: couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
0: All um, I want to talk about a little bit about, I want to ask you a question, sorry. A little bit about, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question in terms of international stocks. We got a question from Dave, who's actually hit us up a couple of times before on on Twitter uh, and also on email. Dave was the guy, for those who listen to the particular podcast, uh, who was talking to us about, um uh, about the um, the doubling his salary. So, sorry, he saved half your his salary. Every time you got a pay rise, he saved half of it, ended up saving 40% of his salary. If you don't remember that story, have a look back at one of our Money Hacks episodes. That was pretty good. Um, Dave was asking about US investing and Australian investing. He says, listen to an old Motley Fool Answers podcast. This is our US cousins in which you're a guest. Notice they did not mention you had a podcast. Disaster. I'll be talking to Chris Hill about that. Um, anyway, he says, uh, I've learned a lot, of, lot about Australia. For Americans buying stock in a company such as Afterpay, What are the advantages or disadvantages of buying the U.S. listing versus the Australian listing? I mean, I get it's easier and cheaper to buy on the U.S. exchange, but if the AUD strengthens versus the USD, would there be an advantage of one over the other? Now, Doc, you invest in both markets, so you're the best person to ask on this one. If you are buying a company that was listed in both exchanges, are there any key advantages or disadvantages for buying one over the other?
2: So, from a share price point of view, like so, the afterpay is there on the on the OTC, or I think it's there's there's a, there's a OTC or a pink slip listing. I don't think it's an it's not really an ADR uh, right. on on the U.S. market. I know some people who have been buying it because okay. of, because of the strength in in California that right. you know in the U.S. that the afterpay has shown. Right. Now, effectively, however many shares of afterpay here represent the number of shares of whatever afterpay mm-hmm. listing is there. It the price should be pretty close in terms of what it is here in Australian dollars to what it should be the equivalent in US dollars. Otherwise, it'll create what I would say is an arbitrage opportunity. So so from a price point of view, it'll be the same. Now, the only thing I would, and it right now doesn't matter to Afterpay, the only thing I'll say is that suppose you've got a company that's listed both here and there. Yep. Um, a good example might be something like ResMed, which is le- listed both in the US and in, in Australia, right? Now, suppose right. you're an Australian resident and ResMed pays a dividend and it pays you a know, partially franked dividend. Yep. If you actually own the US listing of it, yep. you don't get the franking.
0: Right. Right. So That's they, interesting.
2: Yeah. So you don't get the franking. Otherwise, the share price will effectively look the yeah. same. But so if, if
0: you're interested in I never in thought that, that through.
2: Yeah. If you're interested in the franking aspect- That's a it, really good point. Um, then you want to actually own the Australian yeah. version. <laughs> if you don't care for the franking because you're a resident of another jurisdiction or right, right. whatever it is, then it really should not matter. Right. Um, good point. Th- that's the only difference <laughs> I can think of.
0: I like that. Yeah, I think that's true. And-, and Dave, you know because you are so Dave's actually an American because he's going to be taking that money out. We're going to give personal advice. So I'll talk to you directly, Dave, but I'm not talk, giving you personal advice, obviously. Um, because you're going to transfer whatever you get into US dollars. The question is really, is it done by the market, i.e., the US listed stocks already, you know, made that conversion for you, or you sell your Australian shares and then move them into US dollars as you bring the money home. Effectively, the same thing is happening at that stock's point about the arbitrage thing. So there's no there's no real difference there, no real impact or issue. Um, the other thing I would probably add, the only other thing I would add is if you did have both and you were chess sponsored, there's probably a little bit more security. We've talked about this before. I think it's really, really small, and frankly, really, really unlikely. But I don't know about OTC type stocks where they have the same guarantee, the the kind of brokers' insurance guarantee. Do you know if that exists for OTC listed stocks? Oh,
2: actually, I don't know the answer to that. So yeah, I actually don't know. Yeah, if, I,
0: th- if- I think I'd, I'd probably, again, given there's no difference, I'd, I would rather own something that was chess sponsored rather than not all Things being equal, and they're not always equal, but if then, if we are, you know, getting rid of everything else, other than franking, to Doc's point, if you're an Australian taxpayer, that's huge. Um, maybe not for afterpay pay, at least not yet, but in general. Um, but the extra security is probably look, if you pay nothing for it, you might as well take it, I think. Would you agree, Doc? Is that, is that, is that, would that change your perspective at all?
1: Well.
2: Uh- yeah like uh, yeah so I, I think i actually don't buy anything on the pink you know the OTC market yeah, for example pink shoots, yeah. yeah i don't buy that because
0: OTC stands for over the counter Sorry, yeah. i should have said that
2: yeah so i don't i don't do that and yeah e- effectively like again as i said from a australian resident point of view my e- my preference if if i can get the afterpay doesn't pay a dividend and probably is n- yeah. not even close to paying a dividend yeah. so uh, it probably doesn't matter but <laughs> e- yeah like about <laughs> I, I don't know this this is maybe a comfort thing. Yeah, right. Um <laughs> uh, my, okay. com- my comfort really is to just own shares from a major exchange. <laughs> oh, okay. So I would, uh, you know. So you go uh, the other way. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would not. I generally don't like owning an OTC.
0: Oh sorry associate. Oh, yeah. So major yes,
2: exchange this, yes. if something is
0: listed on Nasdaq or okay. NYSE and okay. on the ASX I wouldn't have a problem. So an ADR versus a so an ADR on the Nasdaq versus an the ASX it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Okay, but okay.
2: If, if I have to buy something it's over the counter you know yeah. I, I don't know I just <laughs> Those things change i mean i'm sure you won't lose your money but
0: (laughs) it's it's less well regulated it's it's a it's a funny old market the otc market it's it's kind of i don't we don't really have an an equivalent here in australia but it's 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 less regulated There's smaller companies often penny stocks it is it tends to be by the way a place where a lot of frauds tend to be perpetrated if they're going to be perpetrated the penny stock pump and dump stuff now after is not that at all of course And any company on the otc there's a fair income company just happens to have a cross listing there isn't necessarily bad i think even bmw might be an otc you know in america it's a German, German or European. Yeah, I don't know listing. whether it's
2: a, I don't know whether it's an ADR or it's an OTC. OTC. Maybe it's an OTC. Yeah. So in any case, yeah, it, yeah, it's just a personal preference. Again, probably doesn't matter for BMW or for right. like Afterpay. Right. But you know, again, that's just you know. Sometimes you just have personal preferences. And
0: Hope that helps, Dave. All right, question from Richard, mate. I, I, <laughs> you're, I'm not sure what yours is going to be. Well, I have a sense of what yours is going to be. Doc will say, uh, Richard. Hi guys, I'm an avid listener of the pod. Excellent, thank you, Richard. You didn't tell you nice things about us, mate, yet. So, you could, I mean, Avid's, I guess, something. Um, and a member of Dividend Investor, Discovery 2020, and Extreme Opportunities. What's the first problem with that, Doc?
2: Um, his members of Good Services.
0: Well, so my issue, Rich, is you're not a member of Share Advisor, mate. If you, if you, if you email me or tweet me and ask for some feedback, and you can't, you're going to join the other two services, not mine. Mm. Mate, just quietly. You're lucky if you get your question asked at all. No, mm. I'm kidding. Uh, if you had to, here's, here's the question, Doc. If you had to buy into gold, how would you do it? Would you buy gold bullion, someone like the Perth Mint? Would you buy an ETF where there's physical gold ETFs traded on the ASX? Or through a well-established gold miner like St. Barbara? Thanks, Richard. Hashtag full on. We love the hashtag, Richard. Nice work, dude. Um, doc, I So <laughs> let's let's talk about why people would want to own gold. Mm. Then whether you would do it, and then if or have exposure to it, and if so. How you might go about it. So, what's the case for gold?
2: Well, gold is, I guess, a flight to safety sort of thing, right? I mean, you, in in times of when times are rough.
0: When I find myself in times of trouble, as John Lennon might have said, yes, yeah.
2: When I find myself in t- times of trouble, I think gold <laughs> is what people go to. Um, yeah, like so. I mean, that, yeah. So people go to gold for those reasons. Or people go to cash for those. Well, the reason to go to gold effectively is that. Um, sometimes it will it will trade in the opposite direction of the general market. So if the market sentiment is down, you know, gold might be actually going up. So that that explains it. If if somebody's really worried about liquidity, then it probably should be in cash. It would be my view. Um, okay, That's interesting. But um, in terms of would I buy gold? No. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, Why wouldn't you buy if if I wish that the gold price is up a lot over the last six weeks. Um, it, the, you know, there were some people who will say, "I told you we should buy gold. Look how much money I've made." And you're saying I wouldn't buy it. What are they getting wrong? What don't you like about that strategy?
2: Well, the, the problem with that is that you know, it you, you need to time it. You, the gold prices eventually are going to reflect, you know, cost of production, and um, you know, the price of gold in the market. That's mm. going to swing. Mm. It's it's basically a price taker. It's a commodity, so there's going to be a price taker. Yeah, all of those things. It's just it's it's hard to see what it does on the over the long term. So you Mm -hmm. know, for those reasons, I just find it's just yeah. I find the whole minerals, you know, and mining uh, sector hard. Um, Again, I just don't know that sector well enough to actually have much of a view. So I just stay away.
0: And if someone was asking you, do you have a US two? If they were going to, despite your warnings, despite your advice to stay well away. Um, do you have a view as to, as to how you would get exposure to gold? So,
2: like, I don't know, you can buy it from the Perth Mint, yes. I guess.
0: <laughs> There's a physical gold ETF yeah, or there is, there you, you can, can buy, buy gold a, miners. What would you do?
2: You can actually buy a gold block of gold if you want. You can, yes. you can physical buy gold. Uh, from the Perth <laughs> Mint. You could, I guess, get a certificate that yes. says that a block of gold or several blocks of gold, yes. depending on how much money you want, is has been locked away in some safe somewhere. <laughs> um, you can buy an ETF, that uh, an exchange traded fund that is for you know gold companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of options. Again, I don't have a good answer for this largely because I have not really looked into it. So, I really don't know.
0: Very good. I um, so I'll give you my thoughts, mate. I'm going to echo almost all of your first preamble. Um, I don't buy gold. I've never bought gold. I can't imagine buying gold. Uh, you, to buy gold, you have to have a view on the rest of the market, and that's as hard as anything. So you would have had to have known before the drop that it was going to drop, and you would have had to have known how much, uh, you know, because to some degree gold does move in these sorts of times inversely to stocks. So you kind of got to get the timing right. You got to work out when to sell, and, you know, it's, it's all the same issues with, with stocks. Now, it's the other way around. If you're good at it, then I guess good luck to you. I don't know who is, but but knock yourself out if you can. Um in terms of uh, the why is your flight safety question, doc, is the right thing. It's actually it's traditionally been used to hedge against inflation rather than rather than market kind of panic. Although it's kind of merged into that, it's become this kind of it, it's the other than asset. Right? It's like if I don't want inflation, because that, that's the reason people haven't in the past held cash, because the the view is if I hold a hundred dollars now and inflation's high, that's worth fifty dollars in a couple of years' time if I hold a bar of gold, it's still a bar of gold. And traditionally, the view has been, I'm not sure this is actually backed by evidence, it may well be, the view has been that gold goes up if cash you know, goes down. So it, it was always an inflation protection. And back in the day, our younger listeners might not, might not realize this, inflation used to be a thing, uh, It used to be more than 2%. In fact, uh, back in the early 80s in particular, it was massive for quite a while. Um, interest rates were, were all over the place. We really, I mean, share markets are volatile at the moment, but we're in an amazingly stable interest rate inflation environment right now. Unlike anything I can recall in my adult life, and maybe even in my you know as much as I can remember ever being aware of markets, it's just been phenomenally, phenomenally benign. Uh, so that, that's why people have done it, as you say, doc. That then morphs to this generic, you know, flight to safety kind of asset. I'm not even entirely sure that's justified. To some degree, it's because people sell their shares and go, well, do I put the money." I guess, it, I guess, I guess, gold. So the flow of money helps the share, the gold price rise. Um, that's why they do it. I, I wouldn't, as I said, I, I'm happy to ride the waves. Uh, or you know if you're in, if you're in cash to, to find a better investment opportunity, then the inflation's not going to kill you in the next couple of months. So there's no real cost, um, other than maybe the foregone cost if gold does keep going up. So I'd, I'd probably go cash as well. In terms of how you do it, there, there's a couple of issues here, Richard. Um, I guess if you've got physical gold and that physical gold is, is provably yours... Then that you, you avoid the ownership risk. We just talked about stocks and you know US stocks, for example, are held in street name of your broker. And in theory, they are held on your behalf, but you don't have that same absolute ownership you do with a stock in, in Australia, for example, through chess. Um, if you've got gold, if it's literally in the back pocket, in a safe, then you've got it, you've got it, you've got it. And now you can lose it, of course, that's not to say it's, it's absolutely safe, but the title to that gold is, is reasonably safe. Um, An ETF, in theory, can be worth less. It, in theory, can implode um, in certain circumstances. Now, I'm not saying the particular gold ETFs you're talking about will or can do that. It depends on the rules of the ETF, but the ETF is an abstract instrument by definition. So you should see it as less safe just in absolute terms. If you're drawing a continuum, it's less safe in absolute terms than than physical gold, even though it may, in in practice, be almost as safe. Now, gold miners are really, really interesting one. Gold miners give you a leveraged return or leveraged access to the gold price. What I mean by that is, we talked about profit margins before. Now, I want you to think about, I'm going to make some numbers up here because it's easy and it works in my head. Let's say gold is selling for $2,000 an ounce. And let's say as a miner, you can mine that gold for 1800 bucks an ounce. So your profit margin is that $200 or 10%. Let's just, let's just assume that. Now, if and when the gold price falls from $2,000 to 1800 the price of gold has gone down 10%, but that company's profits have fallen 100% because now they're selling it for the same price as the extraction cost. So they're literally making not a cent. Their profits fallen by 100%. And so you should assume the shares will fall by, if not 100%, a very, very, very large amount, even though the gold price has only fallen 10%. That's going to hurt, right? Now, on the flip side, though, is also true. If the gold price goes from 2000 to 2200, the price goes up 10%, but your profit margin doubles. And again, you're going to get a massively outsized gain. Now, margin's never that small, so don't, don't think it's that easy, but that gives you a sense of, how a gold—that's the leverage that we talk about when we talk about gold miners. Now, I would be really, really wary after a big run-up in the gold price of buying a gold miner because investors have already priced that in. So Barbara, Evolution, Newcrest—they're already—they're already—they're already, already, you know, already prices if the gold price is higher. Which means if it falls from here, um, if it, so if it goes up a little bit, then it goes up a little bit, and that's great. It goes up a lot, then that's great too. But if it falls, you're kind of banking the whole downside. If I was going to play gold or any metal, um, iron ore, for example, is another one, I, if, if, if you have to, I would buy the lowest cost miner when the price is really low. So if the price of 1800 bucks and someone's making no money, but someone else can take it out of the ground for 1600 bucks an ounce, they're still making money. If you can buy the low cost producer when the price is really super low, that's the best way to do it. If you're going to, still risky, still uncertain, but that's the best way in my view to do it. When the price is high, If you're going to do it and again i probably wouldn't but if you're going to do it i'd buy the metal because you don't have that leverage downside if and when the price does fall back to a more reasonable level so i don't like cyclical investing necessarily i don't tend to do it Uh, but if you're going to that's how i would think about the commodity how's that for uh, a bit of a gold redux stock
2: that sounds very golden
0: (laughs) all right one more question and then we'll call it a day not not a week we'll call it a day question from matt hi guys i'm a massive fan of the show never miss an episode just a general question. I've been looking into ETFs and LICs from Australia as I haven't got in anything invested in Australia yet. Another international list. So thanks, Matt. I've got, um, I'm invested in ETF overseas. I know you can't give any exact advice, exact advice, but I was wondering your thoughts on the best LICs and ETFs in Australia, especially your thoughts on some of the WAM funds. Thanks, guys. And as always, full on. All right, Matt, let's start by defining our terms. What is an ETF and what is an LIC?
2: Yeah, so LIC is listed investment uh company, right? Um I actually don't follow them at all. So I don't know much about them. <laughs> and ETFs are basically exchange traded funds, which is basically I can explain the ETF very easily. The ETF is essentially <laughs> a basket of companies that you put together and you can buy them at essentially at once you know, one shot at 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 any exchange, yep. right? So assume that you want to buy the ASX two hundred. Um, the SX200 has essentially 200 companies defined by the SX and S&P. Uh, S&P. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to buy the 200 companies mm-hmm. in small proportions of their, or relative to their weight, it would be very difficult. Uh, it's not difficult, but it's going to be a time-consuming, very expensive process. Right. Um, instead, you can buy an ASX 200 ETF, which does that job for you. They effectively own Um, shares in proportion to the the market capitalization of those companies and I think there's some liquidity rules as well but Mm -hmm. let's assume for simplicity it's just market capitalization so effectively you can own a slice of all of those companies on the ASX 200 um, by essentially buying an ASX 200 ETF so ETF is just basically a way to get exposure to certain parts of the market certain segments of the market um, uh, certain sectors of the market etc.
0: Nice. Listed investment company is kind of old school, right? It was the, before ETFs existed, they were a way you could buy into, you could buy shares of a company because it literally is a company. And all that company did was not make widgets, not sell widgets, not invent widgets. They would just invest. And so you were kind of buying into a, a fund manager who decided to do it on the market rather than off market? In the old days, a managed fund, you had to send the cash to them, the check it would have been the old days. They sent you a check back when you wanted to cash out. These um, that's electronic, of course, but conceptually, that was what it was. The ETF is kind of the merging of the two, right? It takes the fund and puts it on the market. I'm going to say, generally speaking, I don't think there's a lot of reason for LICs to exist anymore um, on the market, just in the sense that um, you, you can be an ETF. The IC the, the structure is simply not necessary anymore. Um, there are some slight differences that really aren't super relevant for our purposes if members want us to spend another or listeners want to spend another hour at some other point doing a deep dive into LOCs then I don't know are you going to come along? Probably not <laughs> no no. Uh, so we won't do that um, in, in the meantime so look that that's that's the difference um, I I I you you you. I struggle really hard, so I am trying to get my words out. I struggle really hard to find a reasonable investment invest in LIC rather than ETF. I have to say, just because mm-hmm. the ETF is a much more efficient, easy, simple structure. The only difference to, to and the other thing about ETFs, they can be either, as you mentioned, doc, you know, kind of index based. or They can actually be active managed, right? So these days, it's even it's even you know, the old days, an index fund was an ETF, an index fund was an ETF was an index fund. You got the ASX two hundred, that's what you got. These days, you can have someone who's running a um, so Morningstar run one. The code is MOT, Moat. M O A T. They are actively picking value stocks, putting them in a basket, and <laughs> listing that fund on the on the exchange. That is a Moat ETF. So they, they can be actively managed, or they can be passive. And passive just means they follow the index without, you know, adding any kind of brain power to which stocks to pick and how much of them. All right, that out of the way. Matt is overseas. Mm -hmm. He's looking for an Australian ETF, but it doesn't really need to be Matt actually in this instance. It could be anybody, although we'd probably say to Australian investors, invest overseas as well. But for anybody looking for an Australian ETF, what are the best ones they should be looking for, mate?
2: Uh, Look, I mean, depends on what he's trying to earn. If he's trying to get a broad exposure to the Australian market, then there's an ETF from Vanguard, which uh, gives you exposure to the Mm -hmm. SX300. Right. Um, That's a good way to get exposure to the entire uh shell market um, if they want specific exposure you know then there are specific etfs then you can you know you can mm. go to like if you wanted exposure to the show banks i'm sure there's a you know banking etf i guess that you can go to if you want yeah, right uh, exposure. Yeah, high yield etf yeah this, high yeah. yield etf then you can get that if you wanted a property etf you're going to think get that so there are hundreds of different types of
0: mm.
2: types of etf again mm. you know depending they're all there to you know, scratch different types of each. <laughs> so, um, again, it really depends on what you're trying to do, how does it fit into your portfolio, um, those right. sort of questions. But yeah, broad market ETF is, is definitely a good starting point for somebody just in, if somebody is is, is uh, in a foreign jurisdiction and they want some X percentage exposure to Australia for, mm-hmm. for their, you know, portfolio goals, then, you know, the Vanguard's um, uh, ASX 300, you know, um, is, a, is a good starting point.
0: Right, nice. All right, I, I, I kind of agree. I think you know we've we, we've talked about we want Australian investors to have more international exposure, but if you're internationally looking for Australian exposure, then then a broad low-cost ETF is almost always the best idea. Right? I think that's where we'd both go. Um, there's a Vanguard Australian one, VAS is the ASX code, uh, which is just literally the ASX 300. Um, if you want broad Australian market exposure, that's the one to go for. Um, I can't think of any particularly great sort of sector or kind of... Um, uh, what's the word, um, strategy-specific ETFs that are Australian-based. Um, the the Moat ETF I mentioned before is a recommendation of ours at Share It's an actually, recommendation we recommend as a buy, but that's actually US companies listed in Australia. So for, for Matt, that's probably not going to help all that much. Uh, for broad Australian exposure, I think that makes sense. Only The only thing I would say is that, and we've said this before, miners and banks are really, really large chunks of the ASX 300. And so Doc and I would probably not recommend a – I'll put words in your mouth, mate. You can disagree with me in a minute um, – recommend it as the best way to get kind of, is the best investment option, right? Like it gives you broad exposure. If that's exactly what you're looking for, it's exactly what you get. But normally, index funds are used to give you diversified exposure to a market. There's nothing diversified about miners and financial companies that make up well more than half and probably close to sixty percent of an index. Uh, so it's, uh, at some point, you're kind of getting a two-sector exposure, even though it looks like it's diversified because it's a whole market thing. Is that fair to say, mate?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that's it's very fair. I think yeah, I don't disagree with any of any of that.
0: Mate, I may, have just, uh, I may have just stolen the answer to our next question. We might make it quick. Let's uh, move on. Okay. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right. Two quick ones to finish, mate. Let's go. Okay. Uh, Giles says, hi, guys. One for the mailbag. Investing in banks has never interested me. However, now that three of the big four are trading below book value, I'm starting to get interested. Could I please get your thoughts on the relationship between a bank's book value and their share price? fool on Giles. All right, mate, below book value. So book value is the literal black and white toted up value. When the accountants sit down, they kind of work out how much the bank owes and how much it owns and says, okay, well, the difference is the book value. In other words, what do the financials say the assets are worth? And Giles is saying the banks are selling for less than that. In other words, if I was a company, I had a hundred bucks in the, in the in the bank and that was all I had as a company asset and my shares were selling for $90, I'd be selling for $10 below my book value. Is that attractive?
2: Yeah, this, this is very interesting. So uh, I find this very interesting because, you know, one way to invest in banks is basically to look at the book value. You know, you want to, you know, buy close to or below the book value. Yeah. You know, like in the old saying was, you know, buy at 0.8 and sell at 1.5 of book <laughs> value. And that's what how you actually, you know, <laughs> invest in a bank. Now, uh, there is a cynical view that you can take is the banks are selling <laughs> below the book value because the book value is probably going to come down right. right so the cynical value is that you know the book value basically is what's the value of the assets right so basically the asset for the bank is the mortgages that they've got mm-hmm. and uh, then they've got deposits which is basically the liabilities you subtract that out broadly speaking that's the you know you're gonna arrive at sort of the tangible book value but if the asset value drops Mm-hmm. Well, so does the book value. Yeah. So that's the question.
0: Um, is that likely, mate? I mean, there's always there's always a possibility, but is it likely the asset value of the banks falls meaningfully from this point?
2: Uh, that's that's yeah. Like you're, you're asking me to make a guess. Correct. I, <laughs> that's why I asked you. <laughs> I I don't know. So I don't know. I think <laughs> it, it is an interesting. Um, it's an interesting scenario now. Again, we are in sort of a we're in sort of a little bit of an uncharted territory, right? So we don't know how Things are going to unfold over the next few months, or how long you know, is this going to go over for the next few months? Is it going to go, you know, for a year? We don't, right? Think, right? right, right. And I think that, and, and markets hate uncertainty, which is why, <laughs>
0: which, is why there's,
2: yeah, which is why there's so much, you know, the you know, markets are down like today again at yep. open like about seven percent. Um, only
0: 5.5 at the moment, oh, thankfully. Oh, oh, look at we'll that.
2: that. So, <laughs> well, look at that. Mate,
0: you know, it's been tough when, when 5.5 feels like a good result, oh, that
2: seems like a great <laughs> result yeah. if, if, you, if, you, if you compare that with a seven point something,
0: right? Oh, man. Um, yeah.
2: so uh, yeah, so I'm not sure. Like I don't, you know, in my mind, it's yeah. not, it's interesting, but is it value territory? And, mm. you know, I'm not really a value investor, but is it value territory? <laughs> this is true. So, so, so that's true. Is it value territory? I'm not sure. Right. Cause you know, like, you know, it's only like 20% below book value, right? I mean, the book value could drop mm-hmm. by 10, 15%. Yeah, now yeah. all of a sudden, yeah. um, you know, you have lost, uh, the opportunity, uh, you know, yeah, it's interesting. I'd, I'd observe it. I'd watch it and see what happens.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree, mate. I think look, it's all about relative value. I would say that a bank trading at near book value is probably better value than a twice book value. And it may fall in the meantime and then come back. So, you know, there's a difference between is this the bottom and is it good value. I would argue that there is always a risk that banks get into some sort of financial trouble. Many people um, are too young to remember that Westpac almost went broke in the early nineties and was bailed out by the Packers. Um, so that's you know, if you think about that in in a broader, long term context, we're so used to banks being strong and un, 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 unimpeachable that you can well, you know, what's what's how bad could it possibly get? The answer is actually really, really close to, to zero. And so we never want to say, hey, at or below book value is obviously unbeatable, great value, you know, guaranteed. What I would say is on average in general, buying below book is a market beating strategy. That doesn't mean it will work every time. And any of these strategies where you're trying to pick individual instances and do it, What's really, really important, and Dr. Scientist here, but I'll, I'll say this on his behalf, and he can he can add to it, is you've got to make sure you're doing it frequently enough that the odds actually end up working out on your side. I, I, I'm not a scientist, so my simple example is: you've got a 50% chance of tossing heads or tails if you toss a coin, but if you only toss it once, I guarantee you, it's a 100% chance or 100% chance of heads or 100% chance of tails. It cannot be a 50-50 outcome unless you're lucky enough to land it right on its edge. Um, and so the, the the simple reality is: yes, if you do it, toss a coin a thousand times, you're going to get pretty close to 500 heads. If you toss it once, it's going to be one hundred percent one or the other. You can't get a 50-50 outcome. So, if you are going to do a, um, if you are going to do a, a, you know, book value based strategy, by all means, do it. Just be mindful that it won't work sometimes by definition, um, and so just 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 invest accordingly. Doc.
2: Yeah, like I think what what you said is 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 right on the money. I don't have really anything to say. The other thing is that you know if you're trying this with Australian banks, right, you've got only four banks really and, and some regional, maybe eight totally. banks that you can try it on, right? Right, right. right. So um <laughs> <laughs> not enough samples, yes. right? You have to yes. keep trying. The other thing I'll say is that yes, you know, banks can get into trouble, but that's different from different from your deposits being in trouble, right? Yeah, so good banks can get you. into trouble, yep. which means the share price can pick, get into trouble. Good point. But you know, uh, you know, I think the banks, the banks could be bailed out, for example, by the government. If they're yep. bailed out by the government, you know, depositors are fine. Deposits, deposits, anyways, have guarantees. <laughs> uh, it's the sh- you know the, the the shareholders who would pay in that, that context.
0: Yeah, when when ba- they really should say bank depositors get bailed out, get bailed out. The bank doesn't get bailed out. No. The, the 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 bank, in terms of the structure, the owners, they get taken to the cleaners. Yeah. The depositors are fine. Yeah. Good good point, mate. All right, let's wrap it up there, mate. I do have another question, but I'll make that the first one for our Sunday mailbag. So, before we do go, don't forget, you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M, Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be nice. Leave us a review. Say some wonderful things. And of course, as always, tell your friends, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on.
1: Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.